0: The reading from the Old Testament comes from Psalm 119, verses 129 through 136. This can be found on page 2 of your bulletin. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears, because people do not keep your law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me as we pray? God, we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart, that we would know hope, that we would know what life-giving community through Christ is like, that we would know power beyond our own ability. Would you uh, work through your word that inspired and created the world and raises people from the dead? In Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever played uh, Scattergories before. Anybody ever play categories here? Yeah. Okay. A few people. And you know, uh, the way the game works is there's different categories, but it's all ruled by the letter on the die, right? So if you rule an A, all those different categories, whether it be actors or sports or history, you've got to list something that starts with an A. Well, if you've played it or understood what I just said, um, you might have a sense of uh, the creativity the psalmist uses for Psalm 119. It is a, an acrostic psalm where each stanza begins with a different letter of the he- Hebrew alphabet going in order. And so he's uh, set himself up a little structure so that he can, uh, you know, sometimes constraint leads to creativity. And this way he can begin to think about God's Word. And the result is the longest chapter in the Bible. And the longest chapter in the Bible is a meditation on the Word of God. And this is what Psalm 119 gives us. We'll have spent three weeks in Psalm 119 in this series on experiencing God's Word. And in it, the psalmist is laboring for perspective. Laboring to retain perspective. Uh, There's a theological word called uh, illumination. And you might guess what it means. But in the Christian faith, it's this idea that uh, we need God's spirit to work through his words to help us to see to help us to have perspective on life in the world. And you know what they say, perspective is everything. I mean, without perspective, you get stuck in the trees, right? And you miss the forest. You miss the big picture. Uh, Why do coaches sit up in the box? Why did kings of old sit up on a hill and watch the battle? Perspective. Perspective. Uh, Two folks that write a lot on leadership, Hyfix and Linsky, out of Harvard Business School, put it like this. Any military officer knows the importance of maintaining the capacity for reflection, especially in the fog of war. Great athletes must simultaneously play the game and observe it as a whole. We call this skill getting off the dance floor and going to the balcony. An image that captures the mental activity of stepping back from the action and asking, What's really going on here? Or another way to say it is, How do I gain perspective on my life? And for the psalmist, uh, his challenge is that he's in some difficult circumstances. Excuse me. If we had time to read Psalm 119, we'd be able to pull out some of this stuff from the context. He's uh, living in a time where there's high skepticism, probably not about the belief in God, the existence of God, rather, but in the faithfulness of God, in the presence and activity of God. He's in a time of skepticism. He's in a time where folks are just sort of like going through religious motions. It's just very lukewarm. Country, Country club religion. It's just part of the culture. And he's also in a time where he's experiencing oppression, likely slander against him. And we don't really know who the author of Psalm 119 is. Was it Ezra? Was it David? We're not, we don't know for sure. But he's in desperate need, as he says here, of unfolding light of the clarity of God's face shining down on him. He needs trustworthy reliable, authoritative perspective. Could you use that? I could. But we live in our own day of skepticism, where many folks would say that's impossible to have. We are well indoctrinated with the uh, ancient parable of the blind men and the elephant. Maybe you're aware of it, right? a group of blind men uh, come across a creature they'd never seen, an elephant, and each of them has a part of the elephant, but they, they sort of think they have the whole. And it's meant to tell us that all of us, basically because we're finite and flawed and blind, will only know one part of the perspective, and therefore absolute perspective is impossible. The problem with it is the parable teaches against that. The parable is told from the perspective of one person who sees the whole room. One authoritative, reliable perspective. The Christian faith teaches that God is both able and willing to give you and I perspective. That we're not doomed to the limits of our finiteness and our flawedness, which we have. And this is the working assumption. Um, Someone who was an atheist for most of his life, C.S. Lewis, and then became a Christian, said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. It makes sense of the world to me. It doesn't answer all my questions, but it gives me a perspective that's credible. And there are two things in this section of the psalm, the unfolding light, that the psalmist emphasizes in particular, and that is the way God's word gives us light with respect to sin and light with respect to grace. And I would argue that both those things, if you you can't get right perspective on that, life's not going to make any sense. It's going to be very difficult to live. So let's look at those two things together. Now, our society, while our society doesn't like the word sin, we certainly believe in it. Because any time there is a you know, terrible uh, atrocity that's done, we can't help but resort to moral words, right? Like evil, vile, cowardly, cruel. We believe in sin. And if that wasn't enough to convince us, we could just look at the last two years. The way the pandemic has brought things out of us that we'd rather not see. Selfishness. Us against neighbor. Anger, hostility, scorn, right? All these different things we have felt in our hearts. And I'd love to say it was just outside somewhere in the world, but there's plenty of evidence of it in the Christian church. Uh, Conservative commentator Pete Wayner. Uh, recently wrote an article in the Atlantic magazine, and he says this, "Uh, many Christians have embraced the worst aspects of our culture and our politics. When the Christian faith is politicized, churches become repositories not of grace, but of grievances, places where tribal identities are reinforced, where fears are nurtured, and where aggression and nastiness is sacralized. The result is not only wounding the nation, it's having a devastating impact on the Christian church. And I will tell you that in his article, if you read it, he spent a lot of time talking to pastors, but I, I don't even need that evidence in the conversations I've had with many pastors. This is what... This is, I think that's accurate. It's what's being seen. And so... Um, The problem is, when we only see the sins of others, it isn't the light of God's Word. It's just really like the neon sign of our self-righteousness. When we only see the sins of others. But that's not being portrayed here. You see, that mindset is what the psalm calls simple. A simple mindset. Now, simple in the Bible doesn't mean a commentary on your education or your possessions, or your lifestyle, or how you like to live. Simple means someone who's easily led astray. And it's not because of education, it's because of their moral character. And so the psalmist is crying out, the unfolding of your words gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. The simple are led astray by their own foolish desires and vision of life. Maybe it's the foolish vision of what money could bring to me or the perfect body, or the perfect political party. Or maybe what marriage was going to be. Or maybe what I thought D.C. was going to be, right? We all have a stroke of that simpleness in us. Simple is also um, an immaturity that can't handle suffering, can't handle confrontation, can't handle conflict. Simple means to be emotionally immature or culturally immature. One of the ministries that we'll, after uh, worship tonight, that we'll have an interest meeting for is our CQ, or cultural intelligence meeting. And one of the reasons that ministry exists is because we understand that all of us, all of us in our natural state are simple-minded when it comes to culture. We filter things through our own bias, our own culture. We need God's help. That's always been the case in the church. I'm not just picking on us. You can read about the early church. But one other place where simpleness shows it's permitting oppression. He says in verse 134, he talks about his own experience of oppression. Now, oppression in the Bible means when a person or a system uses their power and control to their, to their advantage, to disadvantage someone else to hurt someone else, to harm someone else. And in the case of the psalmist, it's likely a concerted effort to slander and malign him. He's a young man. He probably hasn't experienced this for the first, uh, probably for the first time. And yet it's wider than that. We could just read in the psalms alone over 20 references to oppression, referring to uh, oppression of the widow, oppression of the poor, oppression of the orphan, of the foreigner or the stranger. Or we could look at the ministry of Jesus. Where in Matthew chapter 23, he pronounces woes upon the way the religious leaders would oppress the people. He would say, you live for greed and self-indulgence. And yet Jesus started his ministry off by saying, I've come to set at liberty the oppressed. And that's why he spent so much time with the oppressed. And so... The simple mind uh, doesn't really grasp that and actually either directly contributes to it or just allows it, permits it to occur. But the psalmist, by the light of God's help with that perspective, is able to see, is able to recognize. One of the impacts, one of the results of reading the light of God's Word ought to be that you and I recognize oppression more easily. All kind of oppression. That we're able to see it. That ought to be a result of reading the light of God's Word. But there's something else here, um, and something that's different, because while the psalmist recognizes the sin out there and the oppression, he doesn't become hateful and self-righteous. Now, how does that happen? Well, because the light of God's Word also shows him his own heart. And that's why you see two other attributes here. You see, first of all, a humility. He says, keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Right? He has a sobriety about his own vulnerability to that thing. Sometimes, in our efforts to fight for justice in the oppressed, we, be, we can become a very mean and self-righteous person. He doesn't want to do that. He's saying, God, help me be mindful. And, and we need that humility so badly today, don't we? This sense of, but for the grace of God, there go I. And so the psalmist has the humility, the light of God's word is going to shine on your heart first. Listen, if the light of God's word is not shining on your heart, and it's only shining on the world, you'll be a terror. You'll be a terror. It has to shine in our hearts first. But second of all, it not only humbles us, it softens us. You know, when you go to Matthew 23, right after Jesus denounces the religious leaders and all the terrible things they're doing, he then weeps over them. He weeps over Jerusalem. And you find a similar thing with the psalmist here. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. He's just not, I I always feel like righteous anger has got to have a little tear in it. You know, it's, it's appropriate to be angry for just and righteous reasons, but there has to be a softness at a moment's notice. That if someone for a second said, I screwed up immediately, you were able to go, I, I, My posture was waiting to receive you. A softness. One of the things when we uh, had last year our curriculum, Discipleship and Justice, we spent a time talking about lament. A biblical concept. And it's the idea that I just don't know what's going on. The psalmist is feeling it. He's feeling the sin that he sees. He's lamenting it. It may be, you know, you, you lament, as we studied in Disciples of Justice, you lament the impact of unjust housing upon communities, African American communities. It could be you lament the termination of the unborn even with the scientific evidence piling up more and more. It could be that you lament a lack of civility that we live with constantly in social media. It could be that you lament the fact that a bunch of vaccines were set aside for poor countries and they get redirected to richer countries. Now, I'll say this. You can't lament for everything. Only God can do that. Um, there are times, right, where the world lays so heavy on us, we just have to be able to say, I, I, I'm like not going to read anything else. But don't let that stop us from lamenting that spiritual discipline. right? Tears as we shed, as the psalmist said. But he doesn't leave us there, and I don't want to leave us there. It's not just the light that shows the sin. It shows the grace. He says, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore I keep them. I long for them like a deer panting for water. What, what do you regard as wonderful? What's wonderful for you? You're just like, man, this is marvelous. This is wonderful. Or what do you long for? Each of us here has a whole host of longings. Maybe no one really knows them, the depth of them. And as we've been talking about spiritual practice this year, one of the things is we have to be very aware of our longings because they are shaping our practices and our habits. There is a liturgy you and I have every day that lives for those longings. So how could the Word of God be one of those things that is wonderful that you're just like, ah, ah, i got to have it? I, I confess, you know, that, that's a stretch, right? You sort of like, I mean, for some of us, maybe the Word of God is harmful. Maybe you're like, you know, I, I see the Christian faith as harmful. Others of us, maybe we see the Word of God as helpful. Maybe some of us see the Word of God as Useful. Some of us see it as traditional. It's what I grew up with. But how does it become wonderful? Well, I think it becomes wonderful when the true story of God's response to our sin is seen. When God's grace is seen. That's when it becomes wonderful. In the chapter just before this one, in Psalm 118, likely written by the same psalmist, He says, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous or wonderful in our eyes. Now some of you may recognize that verse from the New Testament. It's the Apostle Peter appropriates, takes that very verse and says that Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of it. Even though, you know, uh, people, uh, the world did not recognize him for who he was, the Son of God, or his Savior, or what his suffering meant. You know, he was discarded sort of like a brick that, you know, can't fill out a whole space, or a tile that's broken. He was thrown out. But it turned out God was building the entire house of grace upon him. God was building the whole house upon him, and no one saw it. What's wonderful is God responds to the light of your sin with the life of His Son. That's what's amazing. That's the uniqueness of the Christian gospel. That the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit respond to our oppression... Through the words of Isaiah 53, He, the Messiah, Christ, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so that he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away. This is a picture of his suffering on the cross. He was taken away with your judgment and my judgment so we could receive the favor of God. The grace of God. Now, the trick is, how does that become like a regular word for us? Because you'll notice here, and I, th- I think this was the verse that stood out to me mostly. Verse 132, where he says, "Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way. As is your way." You know, all of us know people, right? No, that, that's you know that's her or his way. That's it's something, usually we mean it negative, right? Well, well, it's just their way. But you know, there's other things. Well, you know, they're they're just so helpful. That's their way. They like to bring gifts. They like to bring food. They like to. That's just their way. It's just so regular. You would say you can't think about them without thinking about that way about them. And somehow. This is what the light of God is supposed to do for you, where you cannot think about God without thinking about his gracious way. You cannot think about God unless you're thinking about his free and conditional love. You can't think about God without thinking about the self giving sacrifice of his love for us. It's so regular. That when you open up the Word of God, the grace of God is just so regular. There he goes again; he's gracious, and then maybe he begins to work into our lives instead of going, "Where is he? What's he doing?" There you filled me again. All of us are prone to this, right? All of us are prone to this. Instead, maybe we go, "There he goes again; he's being gracious again." Isn't that what Jonah said when Jonah wanted to burn up a whole city of pagans, and God showed forgiveness? And Jonah said, "I knew you would do that. I knew you would be gracious." I mean, Lord willing, you know, whoever we think the Ninevites are in our life, let us not do that. At the very least, we ought to be praying, whoever you see as the opposition, praying that they come to know the grace of God. And so, the light of God's holiness is something that not only begins to instruct us, but it transforms us, to close it out. Augustine said, grace, therefore, causes sin not to have power over you. You ever thought about that? You ever thought, like, think about these areas of your life, these vices or things in your life that you're just like, man, this thing has just got me. This thing has got me hooked. Have you ever thought what you really need is the grace of God? Maybe not more discipline or more shame, but you need the power of God's grace. You know, uh, I sinned today. I know that surprises you. But I sinned today, and it was a sin that I sinned a lot. And I just, like, I just felt ashamed. And then God just whispered to me, and he was like, Well, Glenn, you know, your only chance of changing is my grace. So you might as well believe it. You know, you got to, like, that's what you're going to actually have to do if you want to stop this pattern in your life. This is the power that we're told. Yesterday in our membership uh, class, our uh, intro to Grace Downtown, we used to call it the membership class, I, I you know, drew a familiar thing that you guys would have probably seen before, and I wish if you could imagine me... As a whiteboard, that's not too hard. I am white and I am boring. But if you can imagine me as a, a white, boring person, but you know, uh, you know, if one line going up like this, you know, this is—is is this a this is a greater than sign, right? Well, I guess it depends which way you're facing. Jan, who knows about things like this, is like Glenn. You're confusing things. Look at it from my perspective. This is a greater than sign, okay? So if this is a greater than sign, like this, and this is God's holiness, and this is the light of my sin. What goes in between there? Is it like your effort, your shame, your angst? Well, it's the cross. And the more that grows, the cross ought to be growing in our lives. But you know what else happens? You can draw a little heart on the cross because the more that grows, the more your heart grows. The more your love grows. And so, I want to invite us to the balcony of God's grace where we see the light of our sin, we see the light of His grace, and I think that's the balcony we need to be on at least every day. Probably lots of times during the day. But every day. Start your day off on the balcony. That'll that'll change your perspective. Man. Everything from traffic to your job to the mania that's happening in the world. It has and it will. Let's pray. We thank you. That you can give perspective, God. You've done it for thousands of years. And uh, saints of every culture and every time throughout history have testified to that. And we are doing that in 2021 today. Thank you for the perspective that you pour into us. In Christ's name, amen.